From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, small choroidal melanocytic lesions. For whatever reason, tumors that are closer to the optic disc uh, tend to be a little bit more aggressive. And lesions that have orange pigmentation, or which have already reached a certain height that is of more than 2 millimeters, are more likely to grow than those that do not have these features. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Arun Singh declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing, and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. Choroidal nevi are common, and melanomas are rare. Clinical diagnosis depends upon predicting which of these lesions will grow and identifying signal characteristics which aid in this distinction. My guest today, Arun Singh, recently completed a study examining small choroidal melanocytic lesions. He spoke to me from Cleveland, where he directs the Department of Ophthalmic Oncology at the Cleveland Clinic. Since we're discussing small choroidal melanocytic lesions, what constitutes small? Well, there's no real definition of small melanoma, and that's the biggest, I think, uh, one can say, a controversy in, in human melanoma literature. Every author uses a different definition. There is no uniform definition of small choroidal melanoma. I guess that's what you're referring to. Sure. So there is no clear definition uh, in terms of size, in terms of quality, in terms of features. So there's no definition. And in terms of the Combs definition of small, uh, or, or in terms of the definition that you used for, for this paper, what, what is the cutoff for what we understand as being small? The CMS study used uh, it devised its own criteria for defining small choroidal melanomas. They took anything up to more than five millimeter in base and up to sixteen millimeter in base. So between five and sixteen millimeters in base, and height anything more than one and less than three millimeters. So anything that fell within this group was classified as small choroidal melanoma, and by definition. Anything smaller than 5 millimeter in base was classified as, and less than 1 millimeter in height is classified as in use. So that's a, so, that the COMS uh, is truly not a classification because it was ju- it's just an arbitrary definition for recruiting patients in a trial. Mm-hmm. So it's truly not a kind of, let's say, proven classification or classification that has been tested or validated in any kind of subset of patients. This is an arbitrary cutoff for enrolling patients in a in a given trial, which was a collaborative ocular melanoma study. Prior to your study, what signs had been interpreted 
as distinguishing features between choroidal nevi and small choroidal melanomas? Well, if you were to look at the traditional definition, anything that is in choroid and pigmented and is flat is taken as nevus. Anything that's typically uh, more than two and a half or three millimeter in height is classified as melanoma. But there is a, there's a huge overlap. You have lesions that are much bigger than what I just mentioned, and they could be they could behave like nevus in the sense that they may stay stable for many, many years. And you can certainly have melanomas within this group that will grow. So you can certainly have small melanomas and you can have large nevi. And that's the basic problem, is how do you kind of segregate them one from the other. Now, one of the features that has been used to distinguish uh, choroidal melanomas from nevi is growth. But can't nevi grow too? Well, nevi will, can grow, certainly, but I think one should just, uh, qualify this growth. Growth in nevi is very slow and over several years. So you're talking anything about 100 or 200 micron change in 5 to 10 years, whereas human melanoma will have much more uh, dramatic growth, perhaps uh, within 6 months or a year. So it's not that you have to wait 10 years to show a growth and say, well, now it's a melanoma. Oh, that certainly is not melanoma. That would be a, a nevus. A slow growth over many, many, many years is uh, compatible with nevus. Because nevus is also a benign tumor by definition, and benign tumors also grow, although limited. So that's the difference. So it's a qualitative difference in growth. Just presence or absence of growth, per se, is not really a demarcating feature. What has conventional management been for small choroidal melanocytic lesions? Well, the, the traditional is that we, since we are not, since DVI are more common and melanoma is rare, so statistically anything when you look at something that's small or borderline uh, would be considered as a statistically, statistically more likely to be nevus than melanoma. So many people would just observe them initially, maybe and observe them maybe when they're diagnosed for the first time between three to six months uh, and then periodically after that. And if they can document growth or increasing orange pigmentation or subretinal fluid, for example, then you would kind of change the diagnosis and call it a melanoma. But up front, a traditional approach has been to observe them. What is the risk of growth in these lesions? What percent grow? Yeah. Well, it's, it varies highly between published studies, one study to the other, for example. There are studies, 70s and 80s, and where they have no lesion that has grown, so that's almost 0%. And, and in those studies, if you actually look at the inclusion criteria and you realize that what they're including are actually so-called nevi, what most of us would call nevi. And other studies where they have a higher growth rate, for example, 30%, 40%, then they are looking into lesions that are up to 25 to 3 millimeter in size. Just as a reference point, in the COMS study, small melanoma group, the growth rate was 33% or so. So just want to come back to this point that two-thirds of these lesions were classified as melanomas, but they did not grow in five years. So they were truly not melanomas, although they were classified as melanomas. Do you think that these small melanomas represent conversion from nevi, or do you think that they're arising de novo? Both things can happen. I mean, I'm sure uh, melanoma can arise de novo. Uh, there's nothing stops it from doing that. And nevus 
can become melanoma over time too. So we have patients and many have others have also observed similar cases where you have nevus that's been followed and documented to be stable for five, ten years. And then after that many years, suddenly next time it starts to grow. So it can remain stable for many years, assuming that it was a nevus all along, and then maybe just a few cells start to grow within that and become melanomas. So it's like any other benign tumor that can become malignant. So a nevus yep. can become melanomas. Can I have you describe the design of your study? Okay. Well, this is a retrospective study in the sense that we had patients that were observed in a clinic who, because they were having borderline lesions, and a traditional treatment of these lesions is to observe. So they were all observed. And they were observed for anything up to one year to five years, and sometimes longer, to show whether they grew or not. And only about 5% of them actually grew. So 95% or so did not. So telling us that the criteria that we have selected to observe patients is actually a valid one because you are 95% are not growing. If you were treating all of these cases up front, you would be over-treating, you know, so many more cases. What were your inclusion criteria for this study? So the height is anything from 1 to 3.5 millimeters and base is from 1 to 15 millimeters. So it is corresponding to large extent definition of for small melanoma of CO mass, not absolutely, but it kind of overlaps quite a bit with that uh, criteria. And our growth rate is much lower, it's 25%. So again, it's a distribution. I mean, although you have this inclusion and exclusion criteria and one to 15 or uh, from one to three and a half millimeter in size, if most of the cases are towards one millimeter, right? So within this range, if they're on the smaller size, not on the larger size, then your proportions are different, and so your growth rate cycle to be different. Just to go over this once more, how many of these lesions were observed to grow? Uh, only 5%, so 11 cases that actually grew, yeah. What were the risk factors that you identified, and what were their relative risks? Yeah, the, the most important one that we found was presence of orange pigment and height more than 2 millimeters and location near the optic disc. So for whatever reason, uh, tumors that are closer to the optic disc uh, tend to be a little bit more aggressive. And lesions that have orange pigmentation, or which have already reached a certain height that is of more than two millimeters, are more likely to grow than those that, than, that do not have these features. And the relative risk for orange pigmentation was almost 9.6, almost 10 times more. So orange pigmentation we know from 1940s, this is nothing new. Uh, the presence of orange pigmentation uh, signify, signifies uh, increased risk of growth or increased risk of lesion being melanoma. That's proximity to the optic disc or to the foveola? Both. Now, why do you think from a pathological standpoint, proximity to the optic disc or to the foveola was one of the risk factors? We don't know for sure, but I mean, it might be like tortures. Uh, lesions that are near the posterior pole are more easily observed. And some of them may cause acute symptoms because they are in the visually sensitive area when they are small and therefore they come to a diagnosis early on and therefore they might be melanomas. It's hard to, to, to prove that, but that may be the kind of, uh, maybe the kind of bias set in the way these things are diagnosed. But otherwise, I mean, it's possible that lesions that are in the posterior pole uh, behave somehow differently than from outside. Does sunlight have anything to do with it? We don't know because we know that 99% or more of the UV light 
is filtered off by the cornea and the lens. But suddenly, posterior pole is getting UV light, and the other parts are not. So, well, that is that triggering something somehow? We don't know. Why do you think that previous studies have shown such variability in the percentage of lesions that grow? It's it's all to do with the way they designed the study and the kind of patients were included. The inclusion criteria? Each author, therefore, like I mentioned before, there is no clear definition, and each author can use... So if you're including tumors that are on the bigger size, you're going to have a higher growth rate versus somebody who takes only nevi, for example, and their growth rate is going to be zero because we know very rarely does a nevus become a melanoma. So it's all to do with what's included in the series, how, what kind of cases they included in terms of size, in terms of height of the lesions. That's more important than the base. How do your findings with respect to risk factors and relative risks compare with those of other researchers? They're comparable. We haven't found anything that's earth-shattering or different. Uh, Certainly, it highlights that there's variability, but the risk factors come out to be the same. I mean, if you look at the largest prospective study, which is a COMS study, they found the same thing. They found the height to be important. They found the orange pigment to be important. Some studies would say subretinal fluid is important. Some would say maybe fluid or presence of symptoms is important. So one or two factors might be different, but most of the studies will emphasize that height more than two and presence of orange pigmentation are important risk factors. So this is kind of uniform. And Combs found similar things too. Certainly did the same. To what extent is the finding of growth and the diagnosis of melanoma the same thing? For all practical purposes, if you can observe growth within six months to a year in a pigmented corrida lesion, you should consider it as a melanoma. And can the opposite be said too, that if you have a large lesion with a lot of risk factors and fluid and orange pigment, but it's not growing, can you say that it's therefore not a melanoma? Uh, Yes, it's possible too, but if it's not growing, I would say it would be hard for one to say that it's not, it's not, it's a melanoma. It's hard to, if it's not growing, I don't think you can say it's a melanoma because melanoma, as far as I understand, is a malignant tumor and has a growth rate and will grow. So it will grow within three, six, nine months. You can't have a melanoma sitting there for a year. You may call it a melanoma and say that it's not growing, uh, but perhaps it was not a melanoma. Maybe you're, you're classifying it incorrectly. So you can have these large lesions that are inactive, and people have called them uh, dormant melanomas or uh, regressed melanomas, but these are truly large nevi or indeterminate lesions. We don't know what they are. So there's a problem here with terminology. You know, we call it something without pathology, of course, and then attribute a behavior to it. We have to have a randomized prospective trial a multi-centered one, and we're in the process of writing it up, uh, where you can randomize patients that are treated up front, some patients are not treated, and then the one that are not treated gives you a history of the risk for growth, a natural history of the, those lesions, and those that are randomized for treatment will give you the benefit of treatment, the early treatment. Does the treatment really make a difference, or should you just wait and document growth and then treat? Because you'll have two groups in one you treat it up front and the other group to wait it to show growth and then treat it. And on that same theme, if you wait to document definite growth, how concerned are you about the risk of delaying therapy? 
Yeah. Okay. Well, let's. Uh, that's theoretically correct, and let's quant- try and quantify how much that risk might be based on data that we that exists. We know that in small melanoma, according to CMS criteria, the risk for metastatic death in five years is one percent. So. If you that's over five years, and these are the patients that were treated adequately and whatnot. Now, if you were to delay the treatment, for example, you're going to delay it by three months, maybe six months, maybe nine months. So the impact of delay cannot be more than 1%. It has to be anywhere between, perhaps it's going to be much less than 1%, but maybe anywhere between 0 and 1%. So the, the risk that they're taking for this kind of Uncertainty that we don't know what the right answer is, but the risk, the burden of that mortality cannot be more than five percent. Cannot be more than one percent in five years. Since this was not a population-based study, do you think that there was any bias in your study population? Well, you know, whenever data is derived from a large clinic, you are going to have some bias because of selection, the referral patterns, and all those things, and. Uh, but I think the data is applicable because uh, ultimately these patients are referred to large centers, okay? And so therefore this data can be applied to them when you're counseling them. It's hardly ever that you go and screen these people in the general population and say, oh, you have a melanoma, and nobody knew that. So these people are screened somehow, detected somehow, and are eventually referred. So when the patient is referred in the same way as the, the study has been done, I think that you can derive the same, shall we say, you can use these figures in counseling the patients because both undergo the same process. The study population and the patient are channeled the same way. What do you do in your own practice, Arun, when someone comes in with a small lesion that falls within the inclusion criteria of this study? That's like borderline or indeterminate lesion. I tend to observe them. Uh, and I tell them that there's a small risk. We're taking a small risk that this may actually grow, and the risk can be anything between 5% of which is our data uh, to 33%, which the CMS said. So the maximum risk is uh, one in three, but there's still two out of three chance that this will not grow. So odds are still in your favor statistically, even with the worst scenario. Chances are the risk of this growing is actually less than that 33%, anywhere between say five and you know, 33%. So odds are still in your favor that it will not grow and you won't need anything. Some patients say who are monocular or if this is near the macular, near the optic disc, and you know your treatment will certainly affect their vision, or would be more willing to accept this kind of approach. Some patients are very anxious. They want to have treatment, especially if we know that their treatment will not damage their vision, if it's nasal tumor, a peripheral tumor or away from the optic disc and macula. And in those cases, they are more accepting of the treatment. So some of it is patient-driven, of course. Second is determined by the location. Third is determined by the impact of treatment on the vision. But overall, I mean, I think observation is really a valid thing because odds are that this will not grow and odds are that this is not a melanoma. When do you follow these patients up? Yeah, when they're initially diagnosed for the first time, and say somebody walked in today and said, well, you have something, and noted for the first time. I see them in about three to four months is the first visit. And after that, maybe every six months, and then after that, about every year or two, every year once they're stable. So the first visit is in four months, and every four months or so. 
and the next visit is once they are stable on two occasions or so, then you can quote it six months and eventually once a year. In addition to clinical photos, what are the other diagnostic tests that you follow? We normally do photographs, of course, to document the, the base of the lesion, the height. Uh, we also do ultrasound to characterize the height of it to make sure that there's no extra squiggle extension that sometimes one can find uh, as a surprise. And the third thing that I do now this year is ICG because there's some, some, our preliminary data suggests that there may be a correlation between the intrinsic vascular patterns and the risk of growth. So that's an area of investigation. So you can do the ICG and look at the vascular patterns. Uh, are the loops or are you seeing some parallel vessels and different kinds of patterns and try and correlate the risk of growth. But I don't think fluorescein is very helpful. Ultrasound is difficult to get more information than just the height of the lesion, for example. Internal characteristics are difficult to determine for something that's so small. If it doesn't have much height, there isn't much thickness to it for you to actually measure internal features. Arun, thank you very much. Josh, good luck. Thanks. Bye. Arun Singh is director of the Department of Ophthalmic Oncology at the Cole Eye Institute of the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. His paper, Small Choroidal Melanocytic Lesions, Features Predictive of Growth, appears in the June 2006 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Singh or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.